Well, this is our second week in this particular passage, and really, we could take, we could take I don't know how long, just to keep on going through and mining everything that's here. But we're not going to do that. Uh, we are going to finish this week. Uh, and, uh, but before we do, let me remind you of what we talked about last week, just briefly. Uh, first of all, you know, Jesus is saying, I'm going away. This is his farewell discourse. And uh, for most folks, and for the disciples certainly, they would think, well, how can Jesus going away possibly be anything other than bad news? And Jesus says, well, that's not how God operates. He says, he, God doesn't leave, and now you're on your own, and good luck. And God doesn't put you in positions that he hasn't prepared you for so that he can bring great good out of them for you and for the people around you. And so Jesus tells them uh, four things, primarily out of this passage, I think. The first two we covered last week, that the Holy Spirit will carry on the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. Because the disciples would have been saying, okay, if Jesus goes, we don't understand anything that's going on and anything that's happening. Jesus says he's going to die, he's going to leave. How can we possibly be followers of a master when the master isn't here? when there is no master, and none of us are, are ready to take his place. And we talked about how, well, it, the Holy Spirit will, will do that. He will make the disciples' minds and hearts, and your, your hearts and my heart, able to take in the truth that Jesus has left us in his word. Because that's primarily where God speaks to his people, is through the Bible, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, one of the most interesting things, when you look at the early church, you know, just after Jesus has ascended into heaven, and, and now they feel like they're on their own, but they've got the Holy Spirit, and all that they had at this point was the Old Testament. Do you ever think about that? That church in the first years, all they had were the books up through, what is it, Malachi that ends uh, the Old Testament. I think I always try and mix up Malachi and Micah, uh, but it is indeed Malachi, so I'm in good shape this morning. And yet they still were able to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And then we had the apostles, of course, who, who wrote their letters, who wrote the Gospels, and, and what we now have in the New Testament, the 27 books that take place uh, during and after Jesus' ministry, or that record the time during and after Jesus' ministry. But we have a teacher to help us understand all of these things, not just the Word of God, but, but the Holy Spirit who opens up God's words to us. And secondly, we needed to know that we will receive this teacher, we will receive the Holy Spirit through love of Jesus Christ, which always results in obedience. So if we want to know something about, do I have the Holy Spirit who is teaching me? We can say, well, do I love Jesus Christ? And is that being reflected in a growing obedience to him? Because the fact of the matter is that our feelings are not always there. I think that's what we all want, right? We all want to feel God's presence. But our feelings are among the most changeable parts of ourselves. We wake up one way, and by the end of the day, we're entirely another, right? Unless we wake up grumpy, then we're probably grumpy for the rest of the day. But our feelings change. They change quickly. Sometimes they don't change for any sort of good reason. As a matter of fact, the ancient Greek philosophers often said, what we need to do, what we need is our minds to rule our feelings. 
Because our minds, at least, you know, a fact is a fact, right? We can think about that. We can use our brains and sort of govern our feelings in some sense or other. Now, that's not a perfect solution either because our minds aren't wholly trustworthy either. Otherwise, we would all agree about everything all the time. But we don't. So we need the Holy Spirit. And we can test, do I have the Holy Spirit? Can I, is this, this voice that is speaking through Scripture to me trustworthy or not? Well, do I love Jesus? And is that love resulting in obedience to him? But that's not all that Jesus has to say in this passage. See, if you are anything like the disciples, you get to this point and you're thinking, but seriously, Jesus, why are you leaving why don't you just stay? That would be better. This Holy Spirit, you know, the spirit of truth that you're talking about, this paraclete that you're talking about. You know, how am I supposed to recognize the paraclete? How am I supposed to know that the paraclete is, is here? How, how is this all going to work? I feel that way. I feel like, you know, it would be really nice in this moment. You know, maybe a moment of uncertainty in my life is if Jesus would just show up and he'd just say, hey, Ian, here's what I need you to do. I got a list. Like, oh, thank you for the list. I like the list, Jesus. Will you come tomorrow and give me another one? I think that's what we want. That's what we'd really like. But if Jesus is really our master, we got to get on board with his plan, not our own. Remember what happened to Peter when he said, that's a terrible plan, Jesus. Jesus said, well, get behind me, Satan. So let's know that's the wrong way to go. We're going to follow Jesus' plan here. What's Jesus' plan? How is it possible that we can continue to believe in and love Jesus Christ when for the disciples he would have died? For you and I, when we, we can't see him, we, don't, we often don't perceive him, and we're thinking, I, I just feel alone like I'm trying to sort this out. How is it possible? Well, Jesus, if we go here in chapter 14, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. That's a powerful image, isn't it? Uh, there's a scene in uh, Les Miserables, one of my very favorite stories, uh, whether it's the musical or the book uh, uh, or whatever it is, where there is, there is a street urchin, a street orphan, and he joins the, the revolutionaries that are throwing up the barricade in Paris to, trying to, uh, to try and make their point and say, we need these freedoms, we need these, these reforms, whatever it is. It's not really directly in the scope of, of Hugo's work there, but but anyway, this, if you've seen the musical, you'll probably remember. They're at the barricade, and the soldiers are on one side, and the revolutionaries are on the other, and the revolutionaries are, are running out of ammunition. And if they run out of ammunition, that's it. You know, they're, they're all going to die. And so, I think, is it Gavroche? Somebody help? Yeah, it's Gavroche, the, the street, the orphan. And he runs out into the, the street, and he starts picking up ammunition from the dead bodies in the street. And the people behind the barricade at first are terrified, and then they're cheering him on. And the soldiers are, are you know, going, well, we've got to stop this kid. But he's, and so they're shooting, and it becomes this game where Gavroche runs between corpses you know, to grab all of the ammunition and take it back and find Finally, he's shot, and he falls down, and he dies. And it's this sense of utter hopelessness in the middle of the story. 
this orphan, no parents, no one who loves him, is taken in by these revolutions. He doesn't understand what they're fighting about. He just knows that there are people who have loved him and accepted him and given him a place of meaning and value in their lives. And now he's gone. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you like that. Because he's about to die. He's told the disciples, they're struggling to take it in, but when their master dies, they will be orphans. They'll be alone. They'll have no one, and they'll have nothing. They'll be a minority whose leader has been executed by the state, which means they'll all be in danger. They're saying, Jesus, we don't know if it's enough that you'll just send us your spirit of truth because we will be alone and powerless. But see, we're able to believe in and love Jesus because he doesn't leave us as orphans. And how? How does he not leave us as orphans? He doesn't stay dead. He lives again. He's resurrected. And the disciples will see it. They will touch Jesus with their hands. They will see Jesus with their eyes. And in experiencing the reality of Christ resurrected, the disciples will have assurance that everything Jesus said, everything that Jesus did was true and is true and will be true because he hasn't left them as orphans. And brothers and sisters, he doesn't leave you and I as orphans today either. He is present to us. He is the resurrected one. We celebrate it not just every Easter, but every Sunday. Do you remember that the Jews worshiped on Saturday, but the Christians worship on Sunday because Sunday is the day we are not left as orphans. Sunday is the day that our Lord comes back to life and he continues to lead us and live with us and protect us and everything that we need. And we experience it because we have experience of the resurrected Christ in our life through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks in our hearts and says, Jesus is really alive. And he is really giving you life. And look at your life. It's really changing and really being transformed. You want to know if you've got the Holy Spirit. There's no easier task than to go to the book of Galatians and look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those things. And say, do I have those things? Are they growing in me? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes them grow. And he makes them grow in a very strange sort of way. Because there's no one in our world who says, love stinks. I mean, actually, I think some like 80s rock band said it. But in reality, everyone thinks love is great, right? If you are a person who loves and a person who is loved, you're doing something right. If you're joyful, that's good. No one argues against those things. And yet Christians grab onto them in a special sort of way. Because the world always says, you can have so much of this, but don't go any farther. I remember there was a story uh, after the uh, black church in, was in South Carolina, was bombed uh, a number of years ago. And uh, several people in that church came out and you know, they found the bomber. He was uh, alive and they, you know, they, they forgave him. Came out and said, we forgive you for what you did. 
And that's what love looks like. That's what love does. That's, what, that's how God loved us. And I remember reading an article that says we need to stop forgiving these people because we're empowering them. Think about what we're saying in that. Love is not strong enough to really change people, to really transform them. Love will always be overcome in the end by wickedness and cruelty and greed. Christians say, no, we are going to love all the way into the end. You know, sometimes we're not always happy about that because it costs us something. But at the very least, we say that's what we're striving to be because that's who Jesus was. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a way of Jesus not just being present with the disciples, saying, hey, we're all together again, isn't this great? But it was also a way of saying to the disciples that everything that Jesus said and did and will do is true. And that assurance, again, leads back to obedience, which is a key theme in this passage. Do you love Jesus? Then you will obey him. And obedience then leads to full relationship with the Father and with the Son. If you, keep, if you keep reading a little bit further in this passage, starting in verse 23, Jesus replied to Judas when he asked him a question that doesn't seem like this is how Jesus should reply, and we'll come back to that, but Jesus replies to him in verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. And anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These are not just my words, Jesus says, but the Father's words to you. Obedience leads to full relationship with the Father and with the Son. Now, what obedience is in mind here? Maybe that seems like a strange question to ask, but is this just about being morally good? Or is it about something else, something more? See, the resurrection means that the end of everything, the end of this world and the order of this world, has entered into our history. Theologians describe this as inaugurated eschatology. There is no quiz. You do not need to remember that phrase. A simple way to describe this is that we live in an already but not yet age. Inaugurated eschatology already, but not yet. See, Jesus has already risen, and resurrection life and power are already beginning to be experienced by his people. We really are different. We really are transformed. We really are not of this world. You see those, those stickers in people's windows, N-O-T-W? I'm pretty sure they mean not of this world. I remember sitting there, it's got a cross, N-O-T, what can that mean? Not of this world. We are of the world that is to come, the world that is inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection, the world that is beginning to appear in this, but this world is still rejecting. There's still this, this battle, this fight that's going on because the death, even though defeated, for example, it still has power in our world, doesn't it? The decisive battle is won. The end is clear, but we haven't yet reached the peace. Remember, the Allies in 1944 landed on the beaches of France and they started advancing. And once the Allies 
really had a foothold in Europe. That was the end. The war was going to end. The allies were going to win, but the fight wasn't over yet. And that's the period that we live in. The war is still raging, even though the outcome is certain. And back home, people are already beginning to go back to sort of peacetime kinds of ways. Life is beginning to change, and yet it can't change completely yet because the war is not won. Right? The war is not over. So, see, the character of obedience for us today is not primarily do's and don'ts. Like, well, God gets angry if I do this, but happy if I do that. Don't we think of God in that way? Don't we think of morality in that way a lot of the time? It's just like there are do's and don'ts. We don't really think about why they're do's and don'ts. Like maybe we can draw some connections and go, well, you know, lying, it breaks trust, and, you know, it ends up with messed up relationships, and people get hurt. But, you know, some lies, see, the problem with thinking that way is some lies seem to actually benefit the people around us, don't they? We talked about it last week. Does this make me look fat? Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes uh, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and, uh, and provide the evidence. So, uh, yeah, if we think of the law just in terms of do and don't, like it's this magical set of do's and don'ts that God has laid out for us, we're not going to understand it. We're not going to get it. But if instead we start to think of the law as pointing to this is the kind of world that God is building and that the resurrection guarantees and is already bringing into existence in this place. See, that's, it's just living in light of the resurrection. That's what obedience is. Honesty, because that's what the resurrection looks like. Giving it to people straight. Turning the other cheek. Because people who have the hope of resurrection don't need to grab everything that they can get now or protect everything that they already have because something better is coming. We can live as people who, just like Jesus Christ, are willing to be wronged for the sake of the people around us so that they too might get to know Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that the forgiveness that he won for them may somehow be communicated through the lives that we live. And sometimes, just like that article writer, people will look at it and say, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't work, you shouldn't do that. You say, well, yeah, in this world, but a new world is coming, and the king will arrive at any moment. And will you be found faithful? Are you ready to meet him when he comes? Now, it's hard to live this way, isn't it? And it, it, it sounds great when you talk about all the good stuff, but the fact of the matter, we still have to live in this world that doesn't work the way that it ought to. We still have to live uh, amongst people who don't know Jesus, who don't understand the kind of life that that he brings, that we're trying to live, that we're trying to change the world with. I think over the last several months in particular, it feels like cultural change is accelerating in ways that challenge our faith. It doesn't mean there's nothing good in it. Not at all. But certainly it does feel like, you know, the, uh, the life that we're called to live in Jesus Christ, the life that is living in light of the resurrection and not living in light of, well, how do we get ahead here today? 
It's not just, well, that doesn't make any sense. Sometimes it's, well, that's downright wrong. That's evil. That's bad. You're in the way. We're trying to build a better society, and you are refusing to cooperate and participate. Need a little humility uh, to face that because we have often said the same thing to people outside the faith. You know, get on board or get out. You ever found that attitude in the church? We say it every election season, right? If you don't like it, move to Canada. Yeah, we need a little humility. But see, in the fact that the disciples will see Jesus, he adds something else. Let's go back to that question that Judas, not Iscariot, asked of Jesus. I always think that's such an interest, a very human moment in the Gospels when uh, John, as he's writing his Gospels, like Judas, uh, you know, Judas, not that Iscariot character. Man, we're still mad at him. But he says, he says this to Jesus. Because, so Jesus, let me back up even further. He says, uh, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This is verse 21. And then Judas picks up something that Jesus said. He says, uh, in verse 22, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourselves to us and not to the world. Okay, again, if we were doing like missiology 101, evangelism 101, uh, we would not say, you know, Jesus was in, if Jesus was also in the class, we'd say, Jesus, we need you to make an appearance. Like, it'd be really helpful if like we were having a debate on whether or not the resurrection really happened. And then like at, at the key moment, I'll cue you. I'll say, and Jesus really rose from the dead. And then you jump in. You're like, hey, everybody, I'm alive. And they're like, that would be convenient. That would be helpful in our evangelistic purposes today. But Jesus says instead, well, I'm just going to appear to you, to my followers, and not to the rest of the world. And Judas says, why? Listen to Jesus' answer. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Did Jesus answer Judas' question? Or does it sound like he did? That's like the worst answer I've ever heard. You, you ask a question, and Jesus starts talking about something else entirely. Thanks a lot. But Jesus actually is indirectly answering Judas's question. He's pointing him to something else. Jesus has already promised his disciples, people are, are going to hate you because they hated me. And the disciple's not greater than his master. So if they hate the master, they will hate the disciple. Because I told, and Jesus goes on, because I told them that their deeds were evil. No one likes hearing that. So they hated me. Now they're going to hate you. And then Judas is like, why don't you just solve the problem and show yourself to everyone? And Jesus, I think, has in the back of his mind, well, frankly, that's not going to help. Uh, because you know, the evidence uh, doesn't always convince, does it? Think about the last year talking about COVID. Is there any agreement? Are there huge fault lines in our society about what we believe and what we don't. And there are people on both sides who are saying, it's so obvious. What's wrong with you? The evidence doesn't always convince. But here, here's what Jesus is actually getting at. See, in the fact that the disciples will see Jesus, but the world won't, 
we will have assurance that we are faithful even when we are accused of the opposite. Okay? Let me say that again. In the fact that the disciples will see Jesus, but the world won't, we will have assurance that we are faithful even when we are accused of the opposite. Folks, I don't know about you, but I I look at the debates that are happening in our society and in our culture, and I try and approach them with my faith. And there are some places where it's sort of faith agnostic, right? There aren't always uh, 100% right answers or wrong answers just because you're, you're a Christian when it comes to who you vote for, all of these sorts of things. I can't even begin to open up all of that this morning, nor do I want to. <laughs> but there are places where where it's gray. And it's not always hard to decide where those places are, even. But when I look out, often I I find my faith itself being challenged. Is the Christian sexual ethic really reasonable, really good? Can we really trust what the Bible says about these things? Is it really true? I don't know if, if you're disturbed to know that your pastor sometimes has doubts about these things. I hope the opposite. I hope that uh, you will say it's okay for me to have questions too. And I've tried to say that a lot in the past. Strong faith is the faith that asks questions. A weak faith doesn't ask questions because it's afraid of the answers. A strong faith asks questions because it says if God's really true, if he's really out there, then these questions he will answer He will answer well. Not necessarily the ways or as completely as I want him to, but he will engage with me on that. See, sometimes we look out at our culture and and we start to doubt. We say everyone is doing something else. Or we say their, their point of view sounds much more reasonable. But Jesus is saying, but you will see me. And they won't. Who are we serving with our answers? That's the question. Who are we serving? If we are serving Jesus Christ, we're saying, what does Jesus say about this? What does Jesus care about this? Where is Jesus taking us in the midst of this? Then he will meet us in those places. And we'll say, I can be sure. I can be sure that this is worth it. Because Jesus appears to me. He appears to me in his word. He appears to me through his spirit. He appears to the disciples in the resurrection. I'm not, again, let me just give a qualification here. I'm not talking about the heavens opening up. (laughs) And like, oh, there he is. We're good. But a sense of, yeah, this. I, I am following Jesus in the midst of this. And even if not at every moment, at least at some moments, I know the Holy Spirit is testifying in my heart, speaking into my heart, and saying, yes, yes, this is what it is. Because what's, what's the alternative? You know, one of the not great things that happens in our culture these days is we have a, a culture of shaming people who do wrong. Have you seen this? That's the purpose of Twitter is shaming people who do wrong. Or at least that's all I've seen it used for. So maybe you post your vacation pictures or something. I guess that's Instagram. Anyway. 
What happens when somebody has a very public fall? They've done something terrible. I'm not arguing that it's terrible, by the way, either. When you have a a Harvey Weinstein or something like that. We see people who know him coming out on Twitter and say, yeah, well, I wasn't aware of this, but I just condemn this. This is terrible. Let's get him off all his films and all this stuff. You know, some of the response absolutely justified. But what it turns into is then everyone gets asked, hey, we noticed that you haven't condemned him on your Twitter feed yet. Are you bad and evil? Because that's apart from Jesus Christ, what the world has to offer that we'll all be united in our condemnation of the things that we don't like. And if we aren't united, then we're wrong. We'll find the majority, and the majority will tyrannically rule over everyone else in that way. And that's not a culture of inclusion. That's a culture of the threat of exclusion. And that's not the culture of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who takes the lost and the sinner and the wreck, and he invites them over into his home because he's got a big, big house. He says, you can live here. You can be with me. I can make right what has gone wrong in your life by covering and paying for the guilt and by beginning to transform you, not by shame, but by love. But by love. And you know, I'm encouraged by something else as well. This is for free this morning. See, cultural changes that we're experiencing, a lot of them aren't good for our culture. That's also been true for every culture in every generation for all of the history of the world. Some changes are good, some changes are bad. And I don't want us to get all panicked and start thinking like, we're probably the worst culture that's ever lived because that's just not true. We're all pretty bad (laughs) at the end. It's only Jesus Christ who points us toward what is good. And there may be a sense of now I'm feeling discouraged and fearful because of what I see happening. I, man, like, I've been thinking this last couple of weeks, like more and more media is just not something I want to consume, whether it's a TV show or a movie, or, because it's just becoming more and more foreign and more and more alien in ways that I think are, are clearly contrary to what Jesus Christ wants. Not just like turn the volume of that music down because I'm old and you're young, but also a sense of losing some of the, uh, the values that Christianity has instilled in the West over the years. The real changes that are happening. But I don't think we need to be discouraged by it. It's not good for our culture, but God will turn them to good for his people. Romans 8.28, you guys know this verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That means what's happening in our culture right now as well. All things, everything. So here's what all this cultural change will do for us, if if I can apply some wisdom here. It will more and more prove to us that we must set our gaze solely on Jesus Christ. Because in the past, it felt like we kind of got Jesus and all this other stuff too. Jesus and American values or whatever it is. 
And while we can still mourn the loss of some of those things and fight to protect some of those things, those were never our hope. Jesus Christ was always our hope. And that's only more clear these days than it was in the past. And so if we do it right, then we'll just sing one of my favorite hymns, right? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. That's what these days can do. Through the Holy Spirit, through our resurrected Lord. To see Jesus today, to have that assurance, we remember it's, it's the conviction of our Lord's resurrection through the Holy Spirit. I know, like uh, the song in the Messiah quoting the Old Testament, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. It's the fruit of the Spirit's paraclete work in our lives, advocating work, sanctifying work, helping work in our lives. It's the knowledge and experience that we are living lives founded on Jesus Christ, where he is our vision. And the world may not be able to see it unless they get to know Jesus Christ as well. But that doesn't have to discourage us. As a matter of fact, it reminds us. Yeah, this is what Jesus said. He warned us. And now we're equipped to live like him. Last thing this morning the resurrection proves that life in the Spirit through obedience to Christ is truly possible because Satan really has nothing on Jesus. Maybe that sounds like a colloquialism, but it's a very literal translation of what we find uh, here in John 14. If I can find the verse, because I didn't write it in my notes. Here it is. Uh, Verse 29, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. He has nothing on me. This is how one commentator translates it. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Folks, there are two different ways that we will learn about Jesus Christ. The first is in this life, meeting him and by the Holy Spirit, turning to him in faith and following him all of our lives long, whether those lives last one moment or many, many years. The second way of meeting Jesus Christ comes to us out of the book of Philippians chapter 2. At the end, when the Lord returns, and at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you know, the promise there is not that everyone will gladly kneel or bow, but that those who met Jesus in life will kneel gladly and those, those who just now recognize who he is, just at that moment recognize who he is, will not be able to help but bow. The day is coming, and let's live in light of the day 
bringing God's world forward to this by the power of the Holy Spirit, living as a beachhead, as an embassy in this world, encouraged by Jesus Christ, holding fast to the truth of the resurrection and living as people who believe in it.